I can't imagine anything making me happier than what I'm doing today. You know, and it, it's hard. It's hard and it's challenging in ways I've never been challenged in my life, but it's real and I get to be real and I love that every single day. So I'm recording this from the beginnings of what uh, they're calling the uh, storm of the century here in New York City on a on a what's turning into a pretty blustery afternoon. And um, today's today's guest um, came to me in an interesting way. People often ask me where do I find the people that I speak to, and they come from all walks of life, all different ways. This one. Um, Came through an introduction from uh, from a friend of mine, Seth Godin, and when, when Seth reaches out and says you've got to meet somebody, I listen. Um, and he introduced me to Danielle Butin, and uh, Danielle was just kind of going about her life, you know, a, a New York mom, a powerhouse career woman, um, as an occupational therapist who had really substantial responsibility in one of the largest health companies in the world, really at this point. And a, and a trip to, to Africa changed everything in a really profound way. It opened her eyes, it led her to tears, to laughs, and it realized, it, it made her realize in a moment that the path that had brought her to that place in her life had to change profoundly. And that included her vocation and her career, and it led her to start a foundation um, and what that foundation does and the extraordinary benefit that it delivers to, you know, at this point, probably millions across Africa is a big part of the conversation we're going to explore today. So I hope you enjoy it. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So um, so let's take a little bit of a journey with uh, with you. We're hanging out at uh, Good Life Project HQ, also known as my home on the Upper West Side. <laughs> um, and uh, and you have had a stunning um, adventure over, I guess, the last few decades, really. 
You're right now um, running a really amazing organization, which we're going to get into. Um, but before that, you lived a, a fairly different life. So take me back into what the vast majority of your professional life was all about. So I was blessed at a very young age to have an amazing grandfather who had a monstrous influence on my life and really indulged me in the world of aging. And yeah. I, through him, fell in love with older adults and elders um, from a very, very young age. What so, did he do? He was a producer and a treasurer for Broadway shows. Ah, uh, no kidding. <laughs> so growing up, I got to dress up in the original Brigadoon costumes. Ah, uh, how awesome is it that? It was amazing. And he was amazing. And on weekends, he would pick me up and take me to matinees. And mm. he introduced me to theater. And he introduced me to having an amazing, older, loving role model in my life. And so from that point, early... All I wanted to do really was to be with older adults. And how, how old were you when you started to notice this? Middle school. Wow. It started to take <laughs> Which, hold. Right, because at that point, that's the age where most kids actually want nothing to do with anybody over their age. <laughs> right. And I couldn't get enough of him, and huh. I couldn't get enough of others. And I was drawn to elders, and then I had the fortune of taking an extraordinary literature class at Scarsdale High School. Mm in aging and in gerontology. And this one teacher at Scarsdale High School probably changed the course of my existence. Sue Silver put us all in this room, had us reading literature, listening to music about older adults, and then we had to go to nursing homes. And we had to volunteer in nursing homes. So I got a taste of very different older adult than the ones that I had been exposed to. And I remember coming home from this experience in high school, bawling my eyes out, and my mother saying, what do you want to do about it? And I said, I can't believe how older adults are treated in this country when they're not well. And she said, then go to school and make a difference. So what was, tell me what was happening that was upsetting you so much. I saw people being pushed into showers, screaming and yelling and crying, clearly Holocaust survivors that were having a horrible flashback. I saw people being spoken to who had cognitive impairments. At the time, I didn't even know what that meant. Now I know what that means. People who were very confused, being spoken down to, disrespected, pushed around, it it hit a point in my soul that I really thought I was going to be sick watching this show. And so that was a turning point. My mother said, then choose to make a difference in this. And that was it. Um, I went to college. I became an occupational therapist. I did tons of work with older adults. And was that the goal in mind to, to really focus your energies around older adults? Yes. Yeah. And then I got my graduate degree at Columbia and a public health specialization in gerontology and geriatrics. So that was the course of my life. And for years, I built programs in aging. And I taught at Columbia and I did big sweeping programs. And then Oxford Health Plans offered me an incredible position starting their wellness and health promotion department for their Medicare line of business. And at first I said, you're the enemy of medicine. I'm what? not going to manage Okay. Care. So deconstruct that a little okay. bit. Okay. <laughs> um, so to go back, I was teaching um, a fair amount of coursework in at Columbia mm -hmm. in the School of Public Health and in rehab medicine. And someone who was involved came to Columbia and said, would you be interested in 
creating a department at Oxford that doesn't exist. And I really, I felt like it was a betrayal of everything that I believe to be true for older adults. I think older adults should have community-based healthcare. I think people should make informed decisions about what their life should look like. I don't believe a plan should make decisions for you. Mm -hmm. So I raged, you know, and they kept saying, we're going to give you a budget to do everything you dream of doing. And they did. Mm -hmm. And so I, for years of my life, staffed up a department that was amazing. And they did everything from informed decision making for people dying to preventing falls. And I got to do a deep dive into the world of aging, create a testimony for Congress as to what preventive care should look like. Um, and then United Healthcare acquired Oxford Health Plans. And everything I held true and dear to my heart, I had programs in Flushing and Harlem and the Upper East Side. And I knew the way older adults look for care. Mm. And um, next thing I know, I'm being told that what I created there has to look like Austin and LA and Nashville. And I know I'm a terrible soldier. I'm a terrible Mm. soldier. I'm a good leader, but I'm a terrible soldier. So it was time to go, only I didn't know how that was going to happen. Mm. So, I mean, it's it's so interesting. How how long were you actually um, just practice. No, I don't want the word "just" is really diminutive. So I don't. I don't mean to say. It. How long were you really just focused on practicing OT? Fifteen, sixteen years. And then you moved into teaching from there, and then you moved into actually, okay, I'm um, joining with who I perceive to be the enemy. Yes. But which is, I, I, I want to go even a little bit deeper into that because there are so many people who would look at that and say, "Look, I don't care what they're saying. Philosophically, they're the enemy to me, and I wouldn't do that." But which isn't. I have this conversation with people in, in an interesting way because a lot of times there's a, a bit of a bent in the entrepreneurial world that, that corporations are evil. They're the devil. And I actually don't believe that. I don't either. You know, I believe that there are some corporations where the culture and what they're, they're doing is not beneficial. But, you know, to, to name just sort of like everybody, because if, if you can actually, if you know what you're trying to accomplish, you know the values you hold dear, you, you know who you want to serve. And you can actually ally yourself with an organization with substantial resources and power and all this stuff behind you. you know, why wouldn't you do that? But so many people just out of they out of hand reject that. Even if you know, like everything that was offered to you, which was legit and allowed you to make a really big difference, people would just look at it and say, "No, this because it's a large organization, it's the devil." <laughs> I didn't find that. Yeah. I, I, you know, I found it was an opportunity to learn about business. I was strong clinically, really strong clinically, and I didn't understand the business side of healthcare, and I wanted mm. to understand that. A, B, I wanted to find a way to align financial incentives with doing the right thing. Mm. So that was an amazing challenge for me. How do I make it worthwhile to run self-management programs for older adults with diabetes and have it be a cost-effective outreach effort for the managed care plan? That was a fascinating challenge for me, and it was driven by quality. Right. Did you think it was possible going in? (laughs) Yes, I did. Because I really, once I have faith, I have faith. I I really, I (laughs) thought I could do it. Um, And I started... You know, I remember one day there was no literature at all in any of the abstracts that I was looking through to support a premise that I wanted to present to senior leadership. So I started marrying all this like crazy literature about the self-management movement in healthcare Mm. to this initiative that I wanted to launch. And they basically looked at me and said, this is such a hell of an argument that there's no way this is not going to work. Go and do it. And it was highly effective from a cost perspective as well as from a functional health perspective. 
So what, I guess the question then becomes, um, <laughs> like getting a little policy level here, but I'm just really curious about this and I have you here. When you have a model that you've done all this work on and it's working and it's accomplishing things both financially, you know, on, okay, the numbers are good and we're serving people in the way that they need to be served. Um, I guess the question for me is always, you know, even if somebody else takes over, somebody else comes in, what's the incentive not to preserve that? I think when you have a model that is scaled nationally, it's very hard to manage the subtleties of regional healthcare. Yeah, I guess. I'm- and so the one-offs are exquisite and they match what people need and how families respond and resiliently respond. But you can't scale and you can't manage that across an entire country. It was the little nugget of New York, mm. but I don't think it could have been brought to the entire nation. I, I don't know how that could have been managed. Right. So you get to a point where um, you realize this is no longer your future. Yes. And I rage. So I start going to meetings barefoot. (laughs) (laughs) I am blasting the Alvin Ellie's revelation from CD from my office. (laughs) I'm seeing like the hippie beats from the 70s and picket signs. (laughs) Literally. Um, And my favorite was when people would come. um, This was actually one of my favorite stories. There was a group of women um, who would come and um, come to New York from another state and they hated me because I was, I think, such a New Yorker and I was opinionated and strong and I wore black. Mm-hmm. And so um, I I literally would go to the Salvation Army and find 30-year-old tweed suits with big gold buttons when they would come so that they would hate me less and that's how I would dress for these meetings when people would come in. Um, and I remember my staff saying, what's on your body? And I would say, I, corporate is coming in. So uh-huh. I need to dress the part. But it was wild and crazy and ridiculous um, that all these antics were being, you know, brought to bear because yeah. I was so unhappy. And I was managed by a physician all of a sudden, who was not forward thinking, wasn't bright, wasn't inspiring me. I like and need to be inspired on a regular basis to mm. keep my blood going. Um, and I started to wonder when they were going to let me go. And I think they wanted to force my hand because I inherited half the United States to manage. I was promoted and all of a sudden I was given half the United States to manage for the healthcare services. And I just wanted out. And finally, I think after enough barefoot antics and enough of my <laughs> Alvin LECD blasting from my office, which actually made me happy and that's why I played it, um, they let me go and I got a package. And then it was... Really, now what? Yeah. I mean, do you go back to OT? Do you go back to teaching? Or is this a a door that's opening to something totally different? Yeah. And I think that every story has an introduction. And unbeknownst to me at the time, the intro to the next chapter of my life was my out-of-nowhere interest in African drumming and dancing. I would go to the city and I would take West African djembe drumming classes and I would dance to the point of like almost collapsing, dance class after dance class. And this was in the throes of also, I'm going through a divorce. It is upheaval at its finest. And the one place I felt intact and okay through this chaos was when my hand was on a drum or when I was in an African dance class. Mm. So this was this was therapy for you. I mean, and expression and this is where you touch stone. Yes. 
Yes, and very different from the life that I had ever known. And so I got my package, and the only thing that made sense to me at that time was to go to Africa. <laughs> wait a minute, wait, wait. <laughs> Okay, so you're going through a lot of traumatic chains, and you want to reconnect with movement and dance. I can see the move to, okay, I'm going to take classes in African drumming and dancing. It's a pretty big leap to, I need to be in Africa. So take, take me deeper into this. Um, I felt connected in a way I've never known before when I would dance and drum. Like literally, I don't, I, I can't explain the visceral feeling, but it was a knowing so deep inside of me that I knew I had to go to that land and touch that soil. Mm. Um, and I, all my scientific and intellectual training can't explain what that meant, but it was so deep and so riveting for me that I thought this is my one chance. I have no idea how encumbered or booked my life will become once I'm employed again. But right now, this is my little nugget of time mm. that I could go and explore and touch. I wanted to touch the soil. That's all I knew. I, it was beckoning me. Hmm. So where do we go from there? So my significant other and I decided that we would get on a plane. The kids were in camp. They were set for the summer. Um, that we booked an incredible trip to Tanzania. And um, we worked with an agent and I said to her, and he said to her, meeting with people who are non-traditional and having non-traditional experiences is more important to me than anything I can describe. And so she arranged for us to go on a hike in the forest with a medicine man from the Maasai tribe and have him teach us about plants and leaves. And he literally speaks to the forest when people are ill and it speaks back to them, him with what the remedies might be. And I wanted exposure to that kind of medicine and that mm -hmm. kind of knowing that was very deep and extraordinary. And we saw tribal dancing and it was incredible. And I have to say that I landed the plane landed and I burst out crying and I said, I'm home. And he looked at me and the whole plane looked at me, you know, like all these people from Tanzania and they're all looking at me saying, what are you talking about? I said, I'm really home. Like, I don't get it, but I'm home. It's um, like, I don't know. I mean, you look like an Upper West Side, like a New York City person. Me. The girl who grew up in Scarsdale is home. Right. Um, so I... We had incredible experiences there leading up to what was really the turning point. And I would, on a daily basis, um, it was my moment with the divine. I remember I would just sit on the ground and put the soil in my hands and have tears rolling down my face. There was some deep connection that I knew existed, but I didn't know how profound it would be until I was there. And it humbled me to my bones just to have like the soil in my hands. And so we're in the Serengeti. And one night there's this big tent and this woman strikes me as just in pain. Like she just had this very sad face. She was from the UK and I sat down next to her and we were both drinking wine. And I said, are you okay? And she said, I'm not okay. I am probably one of the best docs in England. I have a huge waiting list in London. I've come here to do medical mission work and I'm taking a minute break. And I am astounded at how helpless I am here without supplies. And we start to talk about what that actually looks like for her. There's no gauze, there's no IV starter kits, there's no fluids. And I'm listening and I'm listening and I'm listening. And all of a sudden I'm realizing this is it. 
Like, this is it. This is, this is, I think, what is supposed to happen here and what mm-hmm. I'm supposed to do with the next chapter of my life. And from that point forward, the floodgates open and anyone who's doing any medical mission work in that country from that point forward, for some reason would find me and say, there are no supplies here. This is the most tragic thing I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And so I think when the universe speaks, you, Listen, um, and I don't think messages are, um, I think messages are to be taken very seriously and to be heeded. Uh, and I started to notice them. I, I noticed them over and over and over and over again. And was, um, I had some undoing to do. So I would go to tribal communities and people who were living in huts and didn't have access to care. And my, traditionally trained science brain would say, how am I going to help this get better? How am I going to help this get better? I can't stand it. You know, kids with a runny nose and flies attached to their runny nose and flies running into their eyes. And Tracy, my significant other would say, this is not yours to fix. Hmm. This piece isn't what they're asking for help for. And really kind of like appropriately brought to me, like there's a juxtaposition of what you think is tolerable or intolerable and what people who are living a life find distressing. What people there living a life find distressing is that there's no guarantee they're going to get through childbirth. Hmm. They don't care about the flies. The flies are on me at that point. They're not on them. And so I did a lot of processing and a lot of undoing during that that trip. And I remember sitting with him and just sitting on the end of a bed and crying and saying, I feel so twisted up inside that everything that I think and I know is real may not be when I'm in this environment in terms of what's important. And I started to realize that it was about It was about creating a new reality and listening to other people and not just what I knew and what I'd been trained because I had 20 plus years in healthcare. I knew a lot, right? I came in with this like beautiful model and programmatic head. I'm here to fix this. Right. And (laughs) And I know what needs fixing. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Um, And so this was about being with people and meeting them where they're at and literally saying, what do you think you need? And asking people who never were asked that question before. And literally when I would ask people that, they would say, I don't even understand the question. Hmm. Um, So we leave Africa. I read Mountains Beyond Mountains by Tracy Kidder about Paul Farmer, who we've done a lot of work with, um, on the plane ride home. And I'm convinced that's it. I'm, I'm going to do this. And then I start to wimp out. I'm doing it. I'm not doing it. And what was, I mean, what was this? Well, so when, what was the thing in your mind? Like, I'm going to do. I'm going to start collecting urinary catheters from doctor's offices. Literally, because I knew I could get those. There were enough urinary catheters out there that I could just start collecting something as simple as urinary catheters or basic first aid supplies. And my friend's garages would be available to me. And I'm just going to, you know, store this stuff. And somehow get them to Africa. And somehow get them to Africa. And that would all come together somehow, right? So this was the thinking. And, uh, but uh, the reality is... I am a divorced mother of three. I made a really great salary when I worked in the managed care company. I had been bonused and there were incentives. And so I did really well there. And now I'm interviewing with headhunters for jobs and aging. I want to start a non-for-profit that collects medical supplies. And there's the rub. Uh, am I going to have a life that makes sense to me or am I going to do what I am quote unquote supposed to do and what is in line for me supposedly? And every time I would go for an interview, I wanted to throw up. 
literally, I would walk out of the interview and I did really well in these interviews intellectually, but I, my soul was like still in Africa and it didn't leave me that feeling and mm. I couldn't let it go. So, you know, one night we'd friends over for dinner. This is the turning, this was another turning point. We'd friends over for dinner. It's like two months now that we've been back from Africa and I'm vacillating. What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And I had no food all day long. We drank way too much red wine at dinner that night. I am sobbing. All I want to do is start this non-for-profit mm. and I don't have the guts. How am I going to get over this hurdle? And the hurdle is all me. And Tracy, he turned to me and he was like, just do it. Stop with this agony and just start. And our friends were the same. They were like, just get on the wagon and start. And the next day I started. Literally, it was my turn about face turn. And I said, I'm just now I'm going to really do this. Um, and I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, like, mm. literally, I had no idea what I was doing. And I said to Tracy, I really want to call partners in health. And I want to talk to their executive director, Ophelia Dahl, and find out how I could be helpful in the New York healthcare market to collect medical supplies and get them to some of their sites in Africa or Haiti. So what's partners in health? Partners in health is an amazing organization doing uh, some of the best, best medical empowerment work, I think, on the planet. Um, they're housed in Boston. They're in Haiti. They're in Malawi. They're in Rwanda. And they're headed up by Paul Farmer, who is an extraordinary physician mm -hmm. um, and a beautiful leader. And so I called. I called after Tracy said, just get on the phone. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to get on the phone. I'm going to cold call the biggest organization that I have the most respect for and say, mm -hmm. I don't know what I'm doing, but can you help me help you? I, this is so crazy, right? So he said, yeah, I think that's exactly what you should do. So I had this amazing long conversation with her executive director. She assigned their procurement team to me and the country director in Haiti. And they started to train me in what to collect and what not to collect. Hmm. So out the gate, I had no idea what people would find useful and what they would find right, just garbage. Yeah, yeah. So they did that. And then the next thing I know, um, I start making calls to hospitals in New York, just cold calling them, cold calling the material management people, literally walking through the tunnels of some of the hospitals in New York. Like the, the angels of New York are from the DR and from Haiti, and they run the waste management tunnels of the biggest health centers in New mm. York. So I would just walk through and introduce myself and ask them if they had stuff on a regular basis that they're throwing away that could be diverted to someone else. And they all were like, absolutely. So one hospital in New York I call, and this guy meets with me, and he's from the Dominican Republic, an angel. And he said, you know, we had some water damage. And when water when water enters any kind of storage space of medical supplies, even if it's like a quarter of an inch of water, we have to get rid of all the supplies because they've been exposed to water, and the water didn't touch any of these supplies. And I said, okay, well, show me how much you're thinking of. And I'm literally thinking like a little box of catheters, a right. few Band-Aids. And he walks me into a room of 27 pallets of inventory, eight feet tall. So a pallet is like a five by five piece of wood. Right. And it climbs all the way up to eight feet. And he said, can you take this? And I have my like SUV, right? I have my SUV parked. <laughs> right. like, I'm going to need to get a whole bunch of other moms from Westchester with SUVs down here really fast. And I like took my breath away and I said, seriously, you're giving me all of this? And he said, yes. How fast can you be here? So I... I am 
completely out the gate over my head. And I call Tracy and I say to Tracy, do you know how to drive a semi-truck? Because Hector's saying to us, you need a semi-truck. And Tracy said, I do know how to drive a semi-truck from all of his years in production. He goes, do you realize what you're getting yourself into, Danielle? Like, this is this is a big moment. Mm. And I said, sure. I had no, I, I had no idea what I was getting myself into, but I was just like, forge ahead, make this happen. So we load up this truck. It sits outside of our house in Westchester County for three weeks. The cops are banging on the door. They're like, when are you going to move? So you got a semi truck sitting in front of your house. <laughs> Other than, I have no warehouse. I haven't gotten this far. Banging on the door. When are you going to move your truck? We move it across the street. The guy across the street is so angry that there's a truck there that he tries to run Tracy over with his car. I mean, like it's escalating. We need to find a place to put our gigantic semi truck that's becoming mm. an eyesore. So we find a temporary warehouse where, um, the people who owned this building gave it to us for a song, but they were racist and hateful and vindictive um, and would turn off the electricity and just do terrible, terrible things when they found out what we were doing and where we were doing it for. Literally, it was horrible. So no kidding. So that that was the motivation for them treating you that way was that they found that you were serving people that they were. Yeah. Wow. They, I heard one say, um, somebody who worked in the building say something to the effect of, I can't believe she's sending all these supplies to those people who are dying of AIDS in Africa. They should just let them be. And I thought, this is just not a good fit for me. This is, and like literally would get into my face and yell at me. And I'm in the dark with a flashlight trying to find the gauze. It was horrible. Mm. And yet it was worth fighting for. Like, I think from the start, my conviction was people who are not listened to need those who are listened to to fight like hell for them. And if I can do that with all my years of experience, and this is where your your question earlier begs at this. I was well-trained working for a Fortune 500 company mm. because I got to deal with situations that were complicated, that involved high level of communication, that involved listening in a way most people don't have enough exposure to, to figure out how I'm going to get my point listened to and accepted. And so I had great training in that kind of environment. So here, God help this guy in the stairwell, <laughs> um, right? I, I, that's my conviction. So um, so then this is the other great part of our first warehouse. So then I heard Bombay was closing the furniture store, Bombay, the beautiful like mahogany yeah, I remember stuff. remember used was, to be in there. Yeah, it was great. And so I walked through and went to their back warehouse room and they had gorgeous shelving. And I said, how much do you guys want for this shelving? I need shelving. And this is what I'm trying to do in this dark warehouse um, in Yonkers. And they said, oh, well, this shelving is $80,000. So we want like, I think they asked for like 50 or more. And I said, I'll give you $3,000 for it. And they said, you got to be kidding. We're not going to sell this to you for $3,000. So I went back, Tracy went back every day. One of us went back to talk to them about the shelving. And finally, they gave it to us for $3,000. <laughs> so-, <laughs> so you went from 80 to three. Yes. But I felt like if we just stayed on top of it long enough, and then I didn't have boxes, you know, and what was I going to pack in boxes? So my kids would scream. I had three young kids at the time, scream at me at the top of my lungs because I found PetSmart's garbage. Their garbage area had this incredible cardboard dumpster, and I would lift it up and jump it and start throwing boxes out of it to my son who had just started high school. And he was like, mom, get out of the dumpster. If anyone's going to get in the dumpster, it's going to be me. 
<laughs> but that was the extraordinary chaotic launch. And it is named Athia because Athia is um, the name for health in the Kiswahili language. Mm. And Tracy, I was giving a talk once in aging in the beginnings because I had to support our income somehow. And so I was continuing to work in the world of aging for a while. And I went away one weekend to give this big talk, came home and he had found the name and he had spent time like really like mm. with heart and soul researching, like what would be a match to the intent of like this extraordinary body of work and found the name Athia. So it, um, I love the fact that that carries kind of the soil that made me sob in my hands every single day. And it's, it covers the work. It's just everywhere with it. So, and you brought up something really fascinating, which is that you've got, how old were your kids then? So son was in high school. Son was in high school, daughter was in middle school, and the third was in elementary school. Yeah. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Good Life Project is sponsored by NetSuite. So I remember when our businesses were just starting to really scale. It was amazing and also added complexity and stress. And the things that I used to do in hours were taking days, too many spreadsheets, too many systems, no single source of truth. That sounds familiar. You should know these numbers. 37,000. 25 and 1. 37,000 businesses have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash goodlife. That's netsuite.com slash goodlife to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash goodlife. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. 
excited. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. So you've got, you know, these three kids at really impressionable impressionable ages, Mm -hmm. um, seeing their mom who could easily go and do something very secure, very stable, well-paid and and respectful, you know, like still doing things where you felt you were contributing, turn around and do this. Um, Have you had conversations with them about what was going through their minds, like sort of in these early stages? That's such a great question. I... In the beginning, I was an absentee mother and an absentee partner. Hmm. Um, so I, to birth this baby, took everything I had. And I remember one night with the girls, I have a son and two daughters, and sitting with the girls at the dining room table and saying to them, I just suck these days. I am so sorry that I'm not there for you and I can't be the mother that I want to be. And I don't know how to make it better. And I know I have to make it better, but I don't, I can't figure out how yet. And I have to find a better balance here. And I started to sob. Mm. Um, and then they started to cry and we all just sat there and cried. And it was just like, it was bearing witness to the truth. The truth was this stunk for us as a family. It was extraordinary for the work and what was happening for people globally. But in my own little nest, it was a disaster. Um, and I'm the kind of mom, I don't care what job I have. Every morning I wake up and I make gourmet breakfasts for my kids. I love that as an, a maternal experience. They wake up at whatever time they wake up and there's like really complicated breakfasts waiting for them. And that's like my maternal contribution to start their day. And I didn't do that for months. And it, so the beginning was very hard. And, you know, they talk about it now laughingly, but it's not so funny. They have said when interviewed for press, they've said things like, oh, yeah, we'd be in high school and someone would show up and say, hi, your mom asked me to come get you because you got to get to the train to get to your dance class in New York. And the the writer would say, oh, did she have a password? And they were like, no, but we always knew that it would be someone lovely waiting for us. And would say, Danielle's stuck. She wanted me to come get you. You got to trust me. It's all okay. And, and it was so chaotic and it worked somehow. These children um, talk about now, today, that they learned resilience and independence and a respect for like the work and what can be as a role model that they never imagined happening in mm. their lives, right? So they come from a family that is very creative. I have a very creative artistic family, but going this far to a different direction than the one that we've all been kind of accustomed to going right. um, is a big leap in our family. And, you know, my son came with us to Haiti after the earthquake, right after the earthquake. And he came home to his sisters and said, I can't even begin to tell you how important our mother's work is. And if she has to go away, and if she's not available to us the way she once was, it's for a really good reason. Mm. We have to like be able to share her. Um, and, you know, for him to say that, 
was huge. It was huge. And they all feel that, you know, they all feel a kinship. Every Christmas break now, they come with a group of other friends to Haiti with me, and they lead a creative arts workshop mm. at one of the communities where we work. Uh, and these children love them um, and appreciate it. And it culminates in a performance where 500 to 1,000 people in this community come out to watch their children dance or perform a theater piece or have an art show. And so they've adopted this as like part of their life. I mean, my middle child is at UCLA and she decided to learn Swahili this past year. And she's now almost fluent in Swahili. So it's interesting the way it's kind of rippled for them as well. Yeah. I mean, it's so fascinating. And um, just the fact that you would make that choice to start with and then reach a moment where you were incredibly transparent with what was happening, how it was affecting you and how you noticed it was affecting the family dynamic and, and you were open with them and let them know I'm struggling, which um, as a parent, I mean, I'm a parent also, it's a brutally hard thing to do to actually share that with your kids because you always want to present this image of I got this, Yeah, you know, and yeah. um but sometimes I wonder if that does more harm than good because it doesn't prepare them for the fact that, you know, we're, if you want to do something big, you know, there, there are sacrifices, there's work, there's, and there's, there's a humanity that, you know, it's actually okay to step into and to share and then to see if we can work together to figure it out. Um, and that there's something bigger, like that there is, we're all part of something bigger and that the notion of service is really important. Um, something that's always spinning in my head of how do I, how do I bring that to the interaction with my, my wife, my daughter, and just other people. Yeah. I share a lot of heartache and beauty with the kids mm. a lot. Um, and talk to them about it in an ongoing way. I mean, dinners are stories. Uh, and I think, you know, what I've learned in my life doing this work is indigenous places in our world teach and inspire through storytelling. Mm. I think we've kind of lost that art here. Yeah, I, totally. <laughs> and so I, um, I now embed it in everything that I do. I tell a lot of stories and that's part of what we are as a family now. Mm. So you get to a point where um, this is becoming real. This is becoming an organization. <sighs> yeah. And so where's it going? I mean, what's, what's this building into? So in the beginning, we, um, we started collecting from a number of hospitals. I actually trained an operating room in New York City at five in the morning to teach nurses how to collect from the back of the operating room table supplies that were still totally acceptable. And the reason for this is, um, there are parts of our world where if, um, they don't have enough sutures to stitch someone up. They will dunk a piece of gauze in alcohol. They'll pull the strings out, put it through a needle, and that becomes the sutures. So anything I can do to collect as many of these consumable supplies as I can that are not used, and if anything is exposed to a patient's medical field, regardless of whether it's touched or, or unwrapped, it cannot be reintroduced for another patient in this country. Mm -hmm. So millions and millions of dollars of supplies are being thrown away because of regulations. So we don't have those regulations in Africa and Haiti. I want to get the supplies there. So this is an opportunity in ORs to collect. So we started doing massive amounts of collections through that venue. And then I met, um, this is where worlds start to collide, right? So then at the same time around, I meet this fabulous man in his late 80s, Ed Bobrow, who's on the East Side, start, taught strategic planning at NYU and is in his late 80s and just lost his wife. Mm. 
And he calls and he says, I have a lot of medical supplies. I read about you. I heard about you. I want you to come to my apartment. And there in his den is his wife's rehabilitative remains. You know, her multiple walkers, her wheelchairs, her unused trucks, her unused medical supplies. And it hit me so deeply through him and through his exquisite emotional world of giving the stuff away to create life for another, that this is a blessing, that we have to extend this to families who are in the crisis of bereavement, Mm -hmm. because there's something about their life living on through their supplies for another. And so we started collecting from the bereaved. And my need to work with older adults was completely satiated because I did all the pickups in my SUV, right? Mm -hmm. So I would go to families who were bereaved. I would bring the kids with me. Um, One family, I brought my middle child and um, we watched this daughter holding her mother who was in her mid 80s so proud after I just thanked her and told her where these supplies were going to go. And the mother just put her head on her daughter's shoulder, like in this mist of just terrible grief, there was this beautiful moment of this daughter being so proud of her. And my daughter just started to cry. And I'm like, this is the work. Like, this is the beauty of the work. And it can happen here and it can happen abroad. So that started to happen. More hospitals are donating to us. And then... I wanted to start something for, um, we needed help loading containers, right? So I don't have a staff. It's Tracy and Danielle at this point and, mm-hmm. um, and any volunteers that might come in and want to right. help us. So I, um, decide I'm going to reach out to Children's Village, which is a residential sure. home in Westchester County. And these kids have huge, pasts. And it's a group of boys who I loved the minute they walked out of the elevator. And I started a work placement program where five to eight CV boys would come to the warehouse. They would pallet jack. They'd help us load containers. They'd help us get stuff up on the shelves in the warehouse. And it became the trigger for having lots of populations at risk working in the warehouse. And the conversations we would have were extraordinary. Like one got his girlfriend pregnant. We're waiting for the elevator. We're talking about informed choice. And what does this mean for you? And what does this mean for the rest of your life? And these are the conversations that only can happen around doing, right? So I'm an occupational Mm -hmm. therapist and it's the doing and the doing for others that allows you to have extraordinary conversations. And I'll never forget one boy from CV and I were loading shelves, loading shelves, loading shelves together. And I said, you're a really, really good guy. And he said, no, I'm not. You've no idea what I've done in my past. And I said, well, it's 930 at night. And in your present, you're here working alongside me and helping me. So that tells me that you are a decent, good human being. And it was just like these moments, these beautiful, beautiful moments started to emerge to the point where we then had Riverdale Mental Health Association for people with chronic mental health issues. We had kids from the cottage school through Jewish JCC. We had Devereaux, we had WARC, and now we have hundreds to this day, fast forward, hundreds of people ranging from forensic histories to psychiatric illness to just needing a leg up in the warehouse, giving back, recovering, and feeling like a million bucks there. Mm. Um, And so that happened early in the process, and it just continues to grow. You know, the giving through the bereaved grows, the the populations at risk program here grows, and so does the work we're doing abroad. It's, and it, um, 
It's interesting because hospitals started over time to donate equipment to us. A hospital would close. We would decant the entire hospital. Um, we learned how to do this really quickly. Afia started to develop a big, huge staff. I mean, huge staff. We are seven. But for me, that's like huge in terms of what right. we can support. Um but the growth has been, um, it's kind of like a flower at this point because so many things start to kind of bloom and blossom at once and you have no idea where it's going to go. Yeah. This is also an operation where um, there, you've got a warehouse, you, you're shipping containers internationally. So obviously, even though the equipment is donated and you know, you've got a ton of people volunteering and you know, doing this incredible work for you. I got to imagine your financial needs are substantial. So how do you go about covering that? So that's that's my um, least favorite question. So um, <laughs> what we do is we charge recipients. We've developed amazing relationships. So we're working with a huge, fantastic NGO in Turkey that's building hospitals throughout Africa. We're working with the Tanzanian People's Defense Forces. We're working with... Um, governments, we are working with the second lady of Ghana. We're working with governments and large enough NGOs that can support big change, sweeping healthcare change instead of a container here and a container there. And we do some of that. I'd much rather create sustainable change over time in key areas where we can do that. So we charge a fee to cover the expenses of filling a container and we ask the recipient so whoever it is we're shipping to, to cover all the shipping costs as well. And so every container is worth at least $250,000. It could be up to a million dollars, depending on what's packed on that container. Mm. And I'd say to get a container to Africa, it's between twenty five and 30000 all in, depending on what that looks like. So the cost benefit of this is clear and obvious. Um, but coming up with that kind of funding for many agencies or organizations in Africa is really hard. Mm. So sometimes organizations in America sponsor those shipments, affiliated groups, academic groups do that. And um, that supplements a huge part of the warehouse sustenance. So we figure we have to get two to three containers out a month to meet administrative costs. And mm. that's how we've broken down sustaining the support of the warehouse. And then we do a fair amount of fundraising. And grant writing um, in order to sustain the ongoing work. So why is that your least favorite question? Um, I don't like the money side of this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I've gone from working for a Fortune 500 where I was consumed with my financial spreadsheets <laughs> to like let my soul like just do the work and I just right. want to do the work. Um, and it's hard and it's frustrating. You know, I've gone from the beginning of Afia, I could barely sit across from someone and say, would you consider making a donation? And now I'm way past that point, uh, way past it. But I don't really fully understand the world of non-for-profit development. And I I don't know that that's my best match. You know, mm -hmm. I, I head up this organization and we clearly that's a huge piece of what we do. But I'm my strong suit is in leading and in building clinical models that have a efficacy, whether mm -hmm. they're here or there. Yeah. So it's a combination of um, just not that being sort of like where you came from. But also, I mean, what I've found, so, the, the curiosity for me is that so many people who are really mission-driven and service-oriented really struggle um, with the notion of extreme 
accepting value for what they're providing. Mm -hmm. Even if what they're providing is 10 times more than, and all they're asking for is enough to just sustain the endeavor. I think so many people who are service oriented, they're like, I want to just do this where nobody has to pay anything because I just, because, you know, the fact that we have this barrier is stopping like X percentage of people who could benefit from this from getting it. And it's making us have to staff up and focus a certain amount of energy on fundraising rather than just serving people. And, um, it's interesting to see how different people explore that because I think a lot of people, um, don't explore it at all. And, and it just kind of ignored it until everything implodes. And then, you know, what they're trying to do goes away entirely. Um, then you see other people or, or groups where it's almost the exact opposite extreme, you know, like the entire organization is built around fundraising. Um, and this, I know. there's some really interesting hybrids coming out. A friend of mine, Adam Braun, who started Pencils of Promise, you know, and he's like, look, you know, I don't call it not for profit. He's like, nobody goes into anything to, with the express purpose of not making a profit. It's for purpose. Um, and you're really, it's fascinating to me to see how, there seems to be this new wave of people exploring different, different ways to fund and different ways to, to, to treat it more like a business. Um, but, but it all comes down to almost always the, um, the, the, the sort of longstanding beliefs and values that the founder has around money and service and how they relate. Like, what did you, when you were five years old, how did you feel about that? And that kind of like stays with you for life. I think you're absolutely right. I think you're, a hundred percent right on this one. I, um, I, I, you know, in the beginning, it would be very hard for me when people would call and say, but we don't have any money to pay for these supplies. And I, my, you know, I would crack in half. This was all new to me. And now when people call and say, we don't have any money to pay, my favorite was we actually staged an entire container for this site in Ghana. And we're ready to call the container to be delivered. And the recipient said, thank you so much for doing this. We don't have the money yet, but we hope we'll have the money at some point. And I said, I'm pulling it. And he said, but we need it. And I said, so do millions of other people. And if you can't help us to sustain our costs, we go away. Right. So I'm not, I'm sorry, I'm pulling the container. When you've raised enough money to be able to afford this, then we're a go. And I, you know, that sounds like a hard line, but the reality is if you don't protect what you need to cover your costs, you're done. Right. You can't serve anybody. No. You know, it's, it's, uh, and that is such a tough pill to swallow, I think, for almost anybody who cares. Um, but it's, it's the only way to create something you use or sustainable a number of times, you know. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. 
This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further, to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I'm curious when you're thinking about like things like that, um, you're describing how close you were with your grandfather when you're growing up. That does what he would think of the decisions you're making ever kind of like sneak into the back of your mind? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I, I'd like to think that I inherited from him the ability to really, really care and invest in who is in front of me. And he did that effortlessly. And I would watch him, you know, I'd watch him park his car and we'd go after a show back to get the car and he'd have a bag of fresh, delicious, unbelievable hot bagels for the guy who parked his car. Mm -hmm. And he would just land them in his hands and say, here, I know you love bagels. And my grandfather would like pick stuff up from people all the time. So I like to think that there's an ode to him in those moments where I'm on. And like, I've come to a point or I've come to a conclusion that wasn't clear at the beginning of a conversation. You know, that's a good example of this was when after the earthquake in Haiti, we created an incredible rehab program. We trained Haitians to be the providers of rehab care and thousands of people were disabled in the blink of an eye there. And so we were going through Sean Penn's camp. And we started, we one of that was one of our rehab sites. And so we're going down this cliff and this woman saw me treating a few patients and saw me training our staff with an amazing translator. Ifnil is Haitian, runs our program there and he's, ex, he's an exquisite man and an exquisite leader. And this woman goes, I need you right now for my daughter. And I said, what's wrong with your daughter? And she said, it's her thoughts. So we sit there 
and she's 13. And I said to her, tell me your thoughts. What's, why is your mother worried and why would she want me to sit with you? And she said, I'm scared of going back to school because I'm scared another earthquake will happen. And if I die, she won't find my corpse. And if she doesn't find my corpse, I'm the only child she has. And what will that mean for my mother not to be able to bury me? Pause. Mm. And if Nell is sitting next to me and he went, oh my gosh, I like have these thoughts too. I have these thoughts that I can't get out of my head. So he's equally traumatized. It's a nation that's been traumatized. And I said to her, so let's start to like reimagine you. I want you to start to write. And she looked at me and she said, how do you know I'm a writer? And I said, I don't, but I think the wind speaks to us here. And I'm just going to give you what I'm getting right now. So you're just going to stay with me because I don't know you at all, but I'm going to tell you what I'm thinking and what I believe you need to know. So we talked about her starting to write and reimagining herself as some mystical force that can break through concrete. And these are like techniques that are used for PTSD managing hmm. the symptoms and kind of like re-engineering yourself into something that would have special forces and special capacity. And she said, I would love to write, but my mother tells me that no writers and especially no female writers come out of Haiti. And I said, that's so not true. There's some beautiful writers who come out of Haiti. So it's time for you to start to write. We're going to give you paper. We're going to give you a pen and I'm going to look for you. And one day I'm going to see you at a book signing in New York. And I'm just going to have this huge smile on my face. We went through this whole thing. And Ifnel turned to me and he said, that helped me as much as it helped mm. her. And that was a moment of my grandfather, right? So there it was, that moment of like him bringing the bagels. It was about like really watching and listening and paying attention. And he paid attention all the time. So that's my moment of memoriam to him, I think, on mm. an ongoing basis. Yeah, that's beautiful. So where are you, what are you up to now? Where are you focused? Unfortunately, we're focused semi on Ebola. Um, what is happening in Sierra Leone and Liberia? We yeah. do a lot of work during disasters. So we did a huge amount of work in the Philippines, um, recently. And now, um, healthcare workers don't have protective, they don't have protective gloves. They don't have gowns. They don't have masks. And if we don't protect the people providing care, um, they're going to leave. You know, the exodus will begin quickly. So we are trying to figure out how to get into the air before air is cut off, um, into Liberia and Sierra Leone, pallets of supplies so that we can at least contribute partially to the need for medical supplies. And the Liberian and Sierra Leone community in New York especially is turning to us and saying, can we bring you supplies? Because we need the medical coverage precautions, but we also need stuff that comes from families and communities. And we mm -hmm. do that all the time. We need mops and buckets and disinfectant and Playtex gloves and all this other stuff that families and communities can donate so that we can deliver like wholeheartedly. We saw with cholera what that looks like in Haiti. They needed buckets and disinfectant as much as they needed protective garments for the healthcare workers. So we are in the throes of trying to figure out our strategy for Ebola and maximizing access to supplies. We're doing a lot of work with the Tanzanian People's Defense Forces on bringing rehab units to some of their hospitals, 
creating greater capacity at some of their biggest health centers. And that just like warms my heart because Tanzania started this. So now mm. here we are. Full it's, circle. Yeah, yeah, it's a beautiful full circle. And um, and we have many other projects and countries on our horizon. And we're building this Haiti rehab program out, working with the government now and their secretary of disabilities to bring access to rehab supplies and rehab services countrywide, not just our little organization in Port-au-Prince, but to really expand it thoroughly. Um, so it's if you'd said to me a year ago, where would we be? I don't know that I would have said that we'd be doing all this amazing work in Tanzania. And we're kind of starting to slowly change a country of healthcare access, which is thrilling and beautiful to me. And we're going to make a huge contribution in Haiti for people with a huge variety of disabilities as well. Mm. When I think about the countries that you're talking about, um, in my mind, it's interesting. You know, on the one hand, it's like, wow, what an incredible, incredible adventure, what incredible work you're doing that the service is just jaw dropping. The other head is those are dangerous places. <laughs> are they? <laughs> I don't know. I feel safer and much more at home there um, than I do in some of the environments I find myself here. Like I, um, when I'm there, I am refreshed by the authenticity of the people I interact with. Um, I, and that, um, it's interesting what scares us, what scares me in terms of what's scary is, um, a lack of authenticity and a lack of people being real. Like it, it actually, I find myself getting agita. Mm. Um, I love the fact that I can be in those countries. Um, and people there feel your genuineness. So I've been in areas of tented camps where there are the quote unquote, they're called the bad guys. They've got machetes, they've got guns and they don't come anywhere near us. And I don't know why that is. And I th like to think that somewhere the energy of like being genuine and being there for the right reason is palpable for people and it works. But I am drawn to the authentic experience and I find it there readily. Um, I don't have to worry about what I say. If I think something has to happen a certain way, I can just say it and no one's feelings are going to get hurt and no one's going to say, Dana, you didn't say that in a really nice way. I'd like you to say it in a different way. Can you please? It's just you say things straight and it's um, a, a perfect example was if no. We had a security guard who was asking him for a raise at one of our camps and this guy was literally trying to abscond with our supplies, our materials, trying to steal from if no. And I get there. And I'm watching Ifnel talking to him. And this goes on for over an hour. And I'm disgusted. He's not getting a raise. In fact, he's stealing from us. Ifnel should set a huge limit and just cut him off and say, absolutely not. But instead, he's engaging in this like discussion. And I turned to Ifnel after and I said, we're done. And he said, what do you mean we're done? I said, we're done. Tell him we're done. He's not getting a raise. In fact, he's fired. Tell him he's fired and he's not getting a raise. And he goes, but Daniel, I can't do that. And I said, then I will watch me. And the guy in America, I in a million years would never have done it like this, right? I turned to him and I said, you're stealing from us. We have proof and you're fired and I want you to leave the camp. And if you don't leave the camp, I'm going to get security for the camp. And Ifla looked at me and I said, if no, this is what I need you to start to do. He, who just needed the gumption, started to. But I would never, I, I never had a conversation like that here where it's like, it's just pure. It's, it's, you're not doing the right thing. You're stealing from the poor. You're stealing from people who don't have anything and need the help. You got to go. 
But it's an interesting voice that we can acquire in a land where, like, it's just about being real. Mm. There's an urgency, I think. Yes. Yeah. And there's an urgency to protect. And I, I, you know, it's an interesting question. I, the only time I've ever felt, um, and we've been around gunshots, we've been around a lot. The only time I've ever felt unsafe was there was a terrible physician in Haiti who falsely accused part of our team of stealing and set them up because she was angry at me. She hit me in public, literally smacked me in the head in public. That didn't scare me. What scared me was a number of weeks later, she accused them and threw them in the worst prison in Port-au-Prince. And you're not documented there if somebody doesn't come to testify in front of the judge within 48 hours and you fall into this abyss. And it was at the height of cholera. And Ifnel was one of the people in that jail cell. And... um Tracy and I flew down, it was harrowing, flew down to try to get them out of jail. I literally, I remember packing three black dresses and three black pairs of heels. And I was just going to park myself in a courtroom for like three days and argue and hire an attorney and dress for court. And I get there and this amazing woman, Maurice, who we work with, got them out of jail. She's very politically connected. Sarah, who works with me, was uh, unbelievable at helping to maneuver this. And and the point was afterwards, I was scared. Like I was scared of retaliation. I was scared yeah. of what happens when you publicly humiliate somebody who did something wrong. And I got over it over time. But that was the only time I've ever been aware of like having feelings of unrest. And it had nothing to do with anything but a woman who had some power. Hmm. So uh, the name of this project is Good Life Project. <laughs> when I offer that out to you, um, what does it mean to you to live a good life? Um, I think it's to live an authentic life and to have faith that what you think can happen really can happen. I mean, the obstacles that I described during our talk were crazy. And most people, I think, would say, okay, I, I give up. Like, I, I can't. This is just too much. I think having a good life is about paying attention to the signs that are in front of you, heeding them, seeing them as a gift, and having faith that what you believe can be really can be and listening to that voice. And it leads to like an authentic existence. I I can't imagine anything making me happier than what I'm doing today. You know, and it it's hard. It's hard. And it's challenging in ways I've never been challenged in my life. But it's real and I get to be real. And I love that every single day. Mm, beautiful. Thank you so much. I mean, Thank it's been you. a great conversation. <laughs> So I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Danielle this week. She is just so incredibly inspiring to be around her, to be in the room with her. It's like she's almost vibrating off the chair, just radiating energy. And what an amazing story of somebody who comes and just says, there's a massive need. It's so big, I can't even conceive of being able to fill it. But by God, I'm going to make this happen no matter what's going on. I'll figure it out. I'll find the resources. I'll make this happen. And um, it's just so inspiring and incredible to see what one person is capable of doing when you have a focus and a will and a really strong desire to serve. So um, I know I'm reflecting on this conversation and I've learned a ton. I hope you guys have as well. If you've really enjoyed it, please head on over to iTunes. We'd love if you give it a quick review or a thumbs up. Again, only if it's in earnest. And um, and again, if you are uh, if you were interested in, in my little tease in the beginning of this uh episode about the good life project immersion then just take a jump over to goodlifeproject.com slash 
immersion and you can check out the details and just see if it's right for you wishing you a wonderful rest of the week i'm jonathan fields signing off for good life project Thank you.